Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership through the lived experience of others. In each episode, we meet a leader who's been there and explore their successes and challenges in situations ranging from major combat operations to handling the disbandment of a regiment. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwatch. I'm a journalist and broadcaster, but also a captain in the British Army Reserve, serving with the Rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who went straight from training into operations in Iraq, doing a different role to what they had trained for without spending any time at regiment before deploying. So I was stepping literally into his shoes on an operational tour without having built up those bonds of leadership. Major Luke Turrell did a gap year commission in 2002 and then joined the Royal Artillery on a regular commission in 2006. He is now the executive officer at Chaser, the independent think tank for the British Army, where he's trying to make sure that we understand the conceptual component of fighting power. He's also the first to admit that his leadership style has evolved dramatically over time. When I went to the selection board to be selected to go to Sandhurst, I thought, you know what, it's all about enthusiasm. I I work as hard as I can. I I really, really want this. I really want it. And at one point, the uh, assessor stopped me and just said, less haste, more speed. And I I took that and I thought, you know what, actually, maybe you're right. The leadership challenges that Luke has faced during his career range from taking over a team in an operational environment to commanding a subunit in a regiment that was going to be disbanded. Luke and I know each other from a master's course in strategic communications at King's College London. But I found this conversation particularly enlightening. Luke explains what he has learned about leadership from subordinates and seniors alike in the field and in barracks. It starts with a dramatic birth announcement and ends up with the leadership wisdom from Sean Connery's aide via rocket attacks in Iraq. I asked Luke to start by taking us right back to the beginning and to explain what made him want to join the army in the first place. So I guess what made me join the army was actually the day that I was born because on the day that I was born, my elder brothers were part of the army cadets. They found out that I had been born and the army cadet unit blank fired a 25 pounder gun over South London (laughs) in honour of my birth. So I think you could say that I was marked for military service from day one. And you did become a gunner. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, So so that kind of marked my cards pretty early. Um, I don't think I've ever wanted to do anything else. And as people do, they they think about leaving the army. And I've thought about it a number of times. And at every point I've thought, no, I... I like being a soldier. I like being in the army. It's really important to me. Your experiences of leadership have changed a lot throughout the army. When you first joined, which was on this gap year commission, what did leadership mean to you at that point? And what did it involve? So it was hugely immature because it was based on being the captain of the school cricket team or the school rugby team or whatever. I made a huge amount of mistakes but I hope that I learnt from them. And essentially all it taught me was that I didn't know very much about leadership and that I really needed to study it and really need to understand it. And the regular course at Sandhurst 
gave me the confidence that I knew a bit about it. But it also had the caveat that, and they're keen to stress that at Sandhurst, is that you don't know it all and you need to learn from your soldiers and from other officers once you you leave and you commission. And the kind of, I guess, the, the model for what your leadership experience should be like is as an officer anyway, is you go to Sandhurst, then you go into your phase two training, which for you is at Larkhill. You then go into your battalion or regiment for a while. You then, if you're going to go on operations, do pre-deployment training. You get to know your troop. You get to train with them, get to prepare specifically for that theatre, and then you go on operations. But of course, that's not the way it always happens. And for you, that definitely wasn't what happened. So can you tell us about your first operational experience and how long that was after you finished your phase two training? Yeah, so I uh, commissioned at Sandhurst. I then went to my young officer's course, which was about six months. And then I was, I then was told that I was going to be going straight on operational tour. Uh, the regiment had already deployed. So my pre-deployment training was in some way self-run. They said, right, you need to go on the ranges on Monday, get yourself there, run your training, and then fly out to to Basra, which involved arriving into Basra in a Hercules, completely in the dark, with your body armor on, expecting to be rocketed and mortared at, at any point. It was a slight sort of baptism of fire. And of course, then I then took on a multiple, as it was then, from a hugely respected and experienced officer who moved into another job. So I was stepping literally into his shoes on an operational tour without having built up those bonds of leadership and those that awareness even of who these people were that I was supposedly going to be leading on day one. And then, of course, within about a week, two things happened. One is that we had to do an arrest operation in a small uh, village, I guess, outside Basra, where we were the inner cordon and UK Special Forces were the team going in to conduct the arrest operation so that was very much a baptism of fire the other thing that happened was there was a rocket attack on our accommodation so probably i don't know 10 yards from where i was in the middle of the night and i then found myself in the back of an ambulance holding this soldier's hand who'd been hit by shrapnel and was in you know, extreme shock one of your soldiers he was yes and so that was a a real kind of wake-up call to, right, this is leadership on operations. These people have just been been rocketed. The tents are on fire. You know, step up. And, and actually, it was nice because I really did very little apart from just hold this soldier's hand and reassure him. And my boss at the time, my battery commander, then gave me a kind of, well done, Luke. You did well there in those circumstances. And it was quite nice as well because one of the senior NCOs piped up in a battery meeting and said, oh, Mr. Turrell, you know, well done the other night, by the way. And I thought, I didn't really do anything. But actually, I did what was required. I didn't get in the way. I, I helped Lance Bombardier Turner. Wow. So there's a lot to think about there. First of all, you're going into effectively doing an infantry job where for all of your career, you'd imagined commanding AS-90s or light guns or, or something like that within the artillery. So there's getting your head around you doing a very different role. And then within a week, one of your soldiers being injured through a mortar attack. Were there lots of injuries throughout the tour? And how did that affect 
you, that, that first one? How did that affect your leadership right at the beginning? We were very fortunate as a regiment that we had very few injuries and, and nobody was killed from the regiment on that operational tour. Whilst I was then leading a multiple doing an infantry role, which, as you say, I'd spent six months at Lark Hill learning how to fire guns, which actually I did for a couple of weeks and firing AS-90 in a counter-battery role protecting the airbase. In Iraq? In Iraq, yeah. So I did that, but then we sort of switched and we spent the majority of time doing an infantry role, which I guess I had the confidence to do because of Sandhurst, but I didn't have, looking back, I really didn't have very much training in it at all, but it was sufficient. And I guess the injuries that people sustained, I don't think necessarily changed my style of leadership. I was very fortunate that none of my multiple were injured. I didn't have to deal with the leadership challenge that that presents. And I know it's a huge challenge. And I guess part of my reticence of being on this podcast is the fact that I, I feel a bit of a fraud because I don't consider myself to be a, an experienced leader whilst I've got the operational medals for those operational tours, there were people with far more extreme experiences than I had. And so I don't necessarily feel I'm in a position to to give general leadership lessons. All I can give is my own experiences, and, and I hope that that's valuable. I think it certainly is. And from my experience, having never done operations myself, speaking to those who have done operations, who have spent time in very kinetic environments, I've often heard from them they don't feel that they deserve any accolades, whether that is an operational medal or anything else, because there's often this imposter syndrome about operations and about leadership. And I think one of the things about this podcast is it's just giving people the chance to talk about their experiences because that's always valuable and everyone will have different experiences. The contexts always change and just being able to share that is all that really matters. And on this tour, you were conducting patrols, but you weren't deliberately trying to engage in contact with the enemy. You weren't seeking them out in any way. So it was an unusual context that we were in. The political situation was going on and we had to to balance a couple of things. We had to protect the airbase from rockets and mortars that were happening three times a day. So we were positioning ourselves in areas which we thought that the rockets and mortars might be launched from a, a physical presence. We were shot at a couple of times, but generally by people that weren't very good at it. It was very much a case of preventing those rocket and mortar attacks rather than going out and seeking to initiate a contact. And that's very much my experience and my role. Clearly, there were infantry soldiers in Basra at the time who had a very different role, but I can only really speak for my own. One of the key things that happened when I first took over my troop, and as I say, I took it over from somebody else who was hugely respected. So I had to learn very, very quickly who these soldiers were on operations and having not built up those relationships beforehand. And there was a patrol that we did where I just noticed that the soldiers weren't as professional as I expected them to be. And I took them to task on it. And I said, right, if you don't look professional, then our adversary, the Jaysh al-Mahdi as they were at the time, will think that they can have a go at us. And if they do that, we're going to get into trouble and we're then going to have to deal with it. And I said to them, I'm not prepared to bury any of you. So 
the minimum that I'm expecting is the level of professionalism, which means that the Jay Sharmadi say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to take these guys on. The problem was to be, okay, we need to be so professional that we don't get into a fight and that we dominate areas where we think that they're going to launch rockets from. So again, they don't launch those rockets. It's not about getting into a fight. It's about being so professional that they think, you know what, it's not worth it. So that must have offered some unique leadership challenges. One, because there's this sort of anticipation, but also relief about firefights for soldiers. They're there to do a job. They've trained to do a job. There's often this desire to deliver that job. But then there's also the relief that nothing bad has gone wrong. So that seems to be a constant tension from those who I've spoken to who've been on operational situations. And you're also trying to enact change in professionalism in order to prevent firefights effectively. How was that to manage for you coming into this role sort of unseen to these soldiers? So it was, it was difficult, but I think it was only really at the end of the tour where I overheard some soldiers talking about how our multiple had not had a successful attack upon it. The other ones had, and it was, it was bizarre that the particular soldiers I was listening to were taking pride in the fact that I, as their multiple commander, had kept them safe from those circumstances. But I completely accept the question is that a lot of soldiers go on operations in order to have that kind of combat experience. But I perhaps, maybe it was the context of Iraq at the time, the realisation that Afghanistan was, was, this was sort of 2007, so Afghanistan was increasingly prominent. We had the Chief of the General Staff, General Dannett, who was saying actually maybe in Iraq we're part of the problem. So I think the context filtered through to the soldiers and they thought, you know what, maybe it isn't in our interest to get into a scrap here. Uh, maybe we need to calm things down. So it was you leading them through that change in the way they patrolled by helping them understand how that helped their safety and its role in the bigger mission and the strategy as well. Yeah, I think so. It's strange though because it's the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq and, well, I was only 23 when this happened. I remember having my 24th birthday and I did a 14-hour patrol down to the Kuwaiti border and back. <laughs> How was it working with your multiple sergeant? Did you have a sergeant? I didn't actually know. I had a bombardier. He was a very experienced bombardier, and he subsequently promoted to sergeant. So bombardier, of course, is the equivalent for corporal outside the artillery. Yeah. And initially, we didn't see eye to eye. Obviously, I needed to earn his respect. I needed to earn his trust. And I mean, I did do that, and we're, we're still friends now. But it wasn't a given. Are there any examples of conversations you had about maintaining morale of the soldiers or anything else that are good examples of this yes i remember going to him not long after taking over the troop and i said um, i'm a bit worried that the soldiers aren't happy what am i doing wrong uh, i need your advice and he said well you're not doing anything wrong i'm happy with you I, if you do something wrong i'll tell you he says, but you're not doing anything wrong he says but don't try and keep the soldiers happy he says if you said to them now here's 50 quid have the rest of the day off go down the pub he said do you know what they'd say to you They'd say, only 50 quid, do I have to walk to the pub? And he said, don't try and keep the soldiers happy. Do what's right for them, look after them, but don't try and keep them happy. And it was really instructive, it was really useful. 
Do you learn much from your peers, so other officers who are out in theatre at the same time, that you then apply to the way you lead? Completely. And I take you back to the, the comment about Sandhurst taught me the principles, but actually it was the experience which taught me how to go about it. I remember we were driving out of uh, this little place called Azubaya, and one of the lead vehicles was hit by a roadside bomb. And we were in the back of a vehicle, it was all closed down, it was dark, there was a lot of confusion. And the chap who was sat opposite me was a, a slightly more senior junior officer. So he was a junior captain. And he took hold of the radio, and I can picture it now. He came on the, the radio net, and in the most boring voice that I've ever heard from a human being, gave a very clear, hello, zero, this is our call sign, contact, IED, wait out. And I thought that was hugely instructive because if I had done that at that point, you know, emotionally, stress, it would have just come out as a kind of burst transmission of, of gibberish. But he made himself be boring in order to get that information across, to try to control those emotions, which, of course, are buzzing at that point. Which enables command and control. Yeah. Um, so is that why you're so boring now, Luke? It, mostly, yes. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, then went on to do many other jobs, more operational tours in Afghanistan, some work in joint headquarters, some work with MOD. But you then had the job as, a, as an OC, a major commanding a battery, which is a company-sized unit in the Royal Artillery. And this was a challenging time and a completely different form of leadership from being on operations. Can you tell us a bit about it and what the specific challenges were? Yeah, so it was a UAS, so a, a drone battery. And when I was told that I was, that was, I was going to be commanding that battery, I realized that actually the entire regiment had been selected to be disbanded. And so I knew that the, the challenge was more on identity and more about keeping the battery going rather than operations or training based. And really my focus was on how do I convince the soldiers that I'm looking after them, that I have their best interests at heart, rather than necessarily that the future is bright, we've got operational tours coming up, and all of the normal stuff that you motivate soldiers with. Mm. And so the way that I did that was a couple of ways. I had a photocopy on my desk of the battery nominal roll and everybody's birthday. And when I came into work in the morning, I'd look at the birthdays and I'd go, ah, it's so-and-so's birthday today. I'd then engineer it, a circumstance where I had to bump into that soldier on that day. And I'd talk about the weather or what he was doing at the weekend or whatever. And then as I was leaving, I'd say, oh, by the way, happy birthday. And they'd look at me as if I was magic. You know, How on earth do you know 64 people's names, birthdays? And I'd taken an extra special effort to do things like that because it was all about me saying to them, look, I know that, um, to coin a phrase, we're here for a good time, not a long time. But in that good time, I will look after you. And in the time that I spent as a battery commander, I was fortunate enough to promote 24 soldiers. It was effectively one a month for every month that I was a battery commander. And part of that was me saying, look, I'm looking after you. It's not about deploying on operations, but as a leadership challenge, it was about prioritizing G1 rather than G3. 
And by them being promoted, would that give them opportunities in other regiments? Was that one of the purposes for getting the promotions done? Yes, it was, but it was also giving them the recognition that they deserved, that they needed to keep working hard. They needed to keep building their their skills. They needed to keep ensuring that their professionalism was at the absolute top level and that if they did that, they would be rewarded for it. And did that also make it easier for them to then be absorbed as personnel into other elements of the Royal Artillery by the work you were doing there? Or was the unit disbanded and was it a case of redundancy for most of the people at the end? Well, actually, the decision was made after I left command not to disband the regiment, and it was actually increased in size. So the soldiers then found themselves with a new sense of purpose. They had a number of operational tours. They went to Mali. They did all sorts of other things. Wow. So suddenly that operations motivation kicked back in, and hopefully that firm base of the belonging that we tried to instill in the two years that I was there then enabled that firm base to to be in place. So so this is a really interesting point because it's something that I think most of us in junior leadership, and I I remember it just being a captain in the reserves, whether certain locations were going to open or close, where a platoon was going to move. It's quite unsettling. And there's always rumours coming down of reorbats, rebadging, removing, rebasing, all this sort of thing. And... Very often things either don't come to pass or they happen much further down the line. And if you over-focus on that, I guess, and this is what you're saying through your experience, then it makes it very hard to do anything in the now. So you thought, well, there's nothing I can do about that. So I'm just going to make sure I look after them in the now. And as it happened, that then made it easier for when the decision was reversed for the unit to then be ready to go off and do those operations. Yeah, absolutely. It was all about the battery having strength of identity, feeling that they were a cohesive unit that was being looked after in the short term, that sense of belonging, which fortunately the battery had to a certain extent when I arrived, it was just a case of enhancing and maintaining that rather than allowing them to say, well, you know what, what's the point? We're all getting disbanded. Let's drop our standards. It was very much about a, we are 18 battery. We're going to do the very best job that we can the battery commander is looking after us. There was one thing I did with one of my sergeants, who was a brilliant sergeant, who was a battery training officer as a sergeant. And I'd say to him, I'd sort of point at my rank slide, and I said, I don't need this all the time. But if you phone up as a sergeant, people are going to mug you off. So if you need to borrow this, use my name and say that I want it to happen. I trust you. Use this rank because it will open doors for you. And he would do that. And initially he was a bit hesitant for it, but then he would do it more and more because, you know, when booking training areas or getting ammunition, all these sorts of things we needed to enable that training. So you just, I'm calling on behalf of Major Luke Turrell. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the battery commander wants this to be done. Yeah. And then he'd come back and tell me and said, oh, by the way, I've used your name and we've got this thing. I said, brilliant. So it's trusting your subordinates and delegating responsibility and knowing that when he's going to use that appropriately. Yes. And of course I didn't do it with everybody. But I knew I knew the system well enough to know that if you say Major so-and-so, Battery Commander wants this, then suddenly doors have a tendency of opening a bit quicker. Mm, very good. So you're now in this job in Chaser, the Centre for Historical Analysis and Conflict Research, which is the British Army's think tank to develop the conceptual component of fighting power, aside from the moral and physical 
components. So how does that tie into leadership? And is there a way that it comes all the way back to the way you started in leadership? Well, I hope so. I mean, how I came into it was that I was selected to be a CGS fellow. I did a full-time master's, as you know. That was the thing I did prior to this. Part of Chase's role is to sponsor and help those people who are doing very similar things. So it made some sense for me to to come into this job. But actually looking back on all the things we've spoken about already, Chaser's role in enhancing the conceptual component or helping the army mm. to enhance the conceptual component. The physical component and the moral component are complementary. But the thing about the conceptual component is we need to realize that rather than out fighting our adversary, we need to outthink them. And that's really what the conceptual component is all about. It's about taking lessons, understanding the context, learning from each other, and ensuring that what we're doing is cleverer than our adversary. And that's why it's such an exciting role, was because, as you said, a lot of that is my own experience of where it's been beneficial. And you think back on Iraq, we got the conceptual component right, and as a result, the moral and the physical slotted in at our very low level. I mean, clearly, we, you could have a conversation about Iraq more broadly, but it's not really not really my place. Are there any examples for you of where you... I mean, you talked about avoiding fights with your multiple. Are there any other examples of choices that you made where you're sort of outthinking the enemy rather than just outfighting them? Yeah, I'd, I'd perhaps correct you a little bit. I didn't. We didn't avoid fights, but we ensured that those fights didn't happen. Right, through outthinking the enemy in the way you behaved and dominating the ground at certain times, you prevented contacts on the enemy's terms. Exactly. Right. Yeah. For example, we would go in on a patrol into Azubaya. We would then do an obvious route. We then Azubaya was an area of Basra, was it, it? It's a little sort of town just outside. We'd do an obvious patrol into the town and then back out again using the, the main highway. And then we'd do a 180 degree and go back into the town. The idea being is that we would be unpredictable. We would mean that the Jaysh al-Mahdi or, or any of the insurgents would think, oh, we're just not sure what these people are going to do. So laying IDs, setting up ambushes, that uncertainty is unsettling for a, a, an organization such as that, which doesn't have the firepower or the protection that a conventional army does and it was effective so it was that understanding the conceptual bit and going actually how what what is their weakness and then and playing on it and so in a leadership perspective this is it's command and decision making but it's also liaising with your ncos and others that you're working with to make those decisions yes hugely we're a three vehicle multiple so the other vehicles were commanded by by NCOs. And broadly, I said, this is the plan, but they had the initiative at times to say, actually, you know what? I think we're being a bit predictable here. I think we should go here. Yep, okay, got you. Let's do that. They would satellite around us. So rather than going, you know, Afghan snake S all in a line, we would have satelliting vehicles. And the intent was all about, if the insurgents don't know what we're going to do, then they haven't got the certainty that they can move around openly and therefore maybe they just won't do it. So Luke, 
you know, thinking back to what you've covered today, your first real direct leadership experience involved holding a Lance Bombardier's hand after he was injured in an ambulance and keeping him calm. And now at the other end, you're at Chaser doing this very intellectual aspect. So it strikes me that your leadership style is very calm. Would you say that that's fair? I'd like to think it's calm. I guess the, the analogy of the swan, calm above the water and, and feet flapping. I did, I did hear slightly not so nice nickname for somebody else who was described as the upside down swan. <laughs> so above the surface, they were flapping and below the surface, maybe they were calm. I guess I would like to think that I'm, I'm calm. I guess it's, to a certain extent, informed by that experience in Iraq where the other junior officer was overly calm. He imposed calm upon himself and that had a calming effect on me. Right. And so I've taken that and think, okay, the soldiers that I will work with in stressful circumstances will take their lead from me. If I can be overly calm, they will be too. So calm in combat and now cerebral at Chaser. So you could put that on your LinkedIn profile, Nick. <laughs> We'd like to finish with three rapid fire questions. Can't say quick fire in the, in the army. It means something very different in the gunners. <laughs> what does it mean in the gunners? Well, you tend to avoid the word, the, the F word. Oh, yeah. Because if you're accidentally overheard on a radio, you might, <laughs> you might get some damage to South, Southwestern Railway. Well, let's just, let's just have some quick questions then, Luke. Okay. Um, so the first one is, what is your perfect way to spend a Sunday? Um, I would like to say a, a tough mudder followed by uh, an energy drink, but that really wouldn't be accurate. It's more likely to be a roast dinner at the Sunday papers and a, and a roaring fire with my children. That sounds like the kind of Sundays that I'm moving towards, Luke. <laughs> Are there any books, films or podcasts that have taught you about leadership? I'm a big fan of the film Bridge Too Far. And there's a bit in the film where Sean Connery's character, his entire plan has broken down and a soldier comes up to him with a cup of tea and he outlines that his plan has gone to a ball of chalk and does this soldier think that it's going to be improved by a cup of tea? And the soldier just looks at him and goes, wouldn't hurt, sir. And he takes the tea. And so I think there's, a, there's something about that, that moment which just brings you down to earth and goes, actually, take a minute, have a cup of tea, and then you can break down the problems that you face. But wouldn't hurt to have a cup of tea. If you could offer one piece of advice on leadership to Second Lieutenant Luke Turrell, mm. based on what you know now, what would it be? I would say... Take advice from those people that you trust. And I say that because all the advice from Sandhurst is listen to your senior NCOs, take their advice. And one of the things that I was quite pleased with when I was a battery commander, somebody asked my battery sergeant major, how's your new boss? And he said, this is, this is how the relationship is. If the boss came in and he said, I'm going to buy a Aston Martin, I would then say, well, you know what, Aston Martin's, they don't, um, you know, they don't hold their value. Maybe you'd be better off with a Ferrari. And then the next day, he'd drive into work in a Lamborghini. And the point he made of it was that I didn't just do what he said to do, but I did take his advice. And I think that's the difference, is that as a second lieutenant, when you go into the army, you're told to take advice. But in some cases, that advice isn't very good. And you have to learn who you can take advice from, who you can trust and then take it. 
do you still have the Lamborghini? Sadly not. No, I have a, <laughs> a rubbish old car. Well, Luke, thanks very much. Maybe we should go and have a cup of tea now. Sounds good to me. Thanks for today, mate. No worries. This conversation with Luke has given me a lot to think about, particularly how he talked about understanding the varying needs of those under your command in different situations. I really liked how he talked about treating everyone with value and dignity, whatever the mission, and how he talked about finding ways to help the people you're leading make changes for the interests of the mission. This was an episode of The Human Advantage, presented by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy, and co-produced by Catherine Carr from Feast Collective on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army, or the United Kingdom government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app, where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.